Please continue standing for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Jennifer, I want to thank you for reading our lesson this morning, and thank you for being a mentor to our confirmands. In fact, there are a number of mentors, friends in faith, counselors, uh, Holly Fisher, who's done such a marvelous job of leading this ministry. And if you've been a part of this in any way as an adult counselor, friend in faith, uh, we'd like for you to stand so that we can give thanks for you. Would you please stand if you've been a part of this? Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I want to do some speed preaching now. Uh, You've heard of speed dating, but I want to do some speed preaching because I've got a few things I want to say about today that I think may be important for us. What we have done here this morning is one of the most important events in the life of the church because what we've witnessed today is a form of passing on the baton, passing on the faith to the next generation. And you sixth graders are the next generation. Today you have done something that we have done as we sit with you. You have publicly declared your faith in Jesus Christ. You have repented of your sin, and you have put your whole trust in God's grace. Not partly, not compartmentalized, not halfway, but your whole trust in God's grace. And you've promised God today to live the life of a disciple, and that's big. That's huge. In fact, I think it is the most important decision that a human being can ever make. Dads, this is more important even than marriage someday. It is more important than vocation, choice of college, any of that. In fact, what you have done here at the altar today will influence all other decisions that you make in your life. Now, I don't know if you know this, sixth graders, but you're a part of what social scientists are calling today Generation Z. Did you know that you're a part of Gen Z? You are. There are six different generations within our church, and I have to tell you, as a communicator, as a pastor and teacher, it is very difficult to communicate to six generations at the same time. And we we begin with the GI generation, Uh, the greatest generation, 1900 to 1924. And then there's the silent generation, sometimes called the traditionalist generation. My parents, born between 1925 and 1944 or thereabout. And then there's the boomers. Out of curiosity, how many boomers are in the house? I figured it would be most of you. Born between 46 and maybe 64. And then there's the generation Xers, between 64 and maybe 81. How many Xers? number of Xers. And then come the millennials after that. Now, this is dangerous, but how many millennials are in the house? Thank you both. There's a few of you. So so they tell us that, that millennials are the least affiliated 
with the church and we thank God for those that we have and we want more. We want to live in. And then comes you. Then comes Generation Z. In fact, they're saying now that those born after you, 2016 or later, uh, they're a part of what's called the Alpha Generation. So we're going from Z back to A at this point. But those of you born between 1995 and 2015, you're a part of the Z generation. Let me tell you what that means in terms of who you are. You are the first true digital natives. In other words, you were born with a cell phone in your hand. Uh, You are the go-tos for your grandparents just before they throw their iPad out the window. They are absolutely lost without you. Technologically speaking, you have no memory of 9-11. You were not born at that point in history. It is predicted by those who claim to know that you will be more innovative in your life. You'll be more creative. You'll be more artistic. You'll be more independent of your parents than the preceding generations. You'll be more concerned about the environment and more respectful of people. And evidence is already showing, thanks be to God, that you will be more committed to your faith and faith community than the generations before you. In fact, and I hate to put this burden on you, but there are some who say that you will be the next greatest generation. And I pray to God it's true. I say all that to say this to you. We see tremendous promise in you. I told Holly the other day, the last two or three confirmation classes, I have seen a deeper maturity and respect than I've seen in 37 years of ministry, and I'm not indicting all the other confirmation classes. I'm saying we see great promise in you. According to the scripture that Jennifer read for us, we're not the only ones who see promise in you. Jesus sees great promise in you. Did you know that Jesus loves children? Did you know that Jesus values young people? He does, and not everybody does. And so our text begins like this. Now parents were bringing their children to Jesus so that he might touch them and and bless them. This was not unusual in Jesus' day. Jewish parents in the first century, just like Christian parents in the 21st century, we want our children to know the blessing of God. We want you to experience the fact that God has chosen you even in the womb, that you belong to God. It's interesting, in a few weeks we're going to be celebrating the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, but did you know, according to that same chapter in Luke chapter 2, that after Jesus' birth, when he was eight days old, that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple in order to be dedicated to God. The pastor who was on call that day, his name was Brother Simeon. Got a picture. He was old as dirt. And he took took this holy child in his arms and he blessed him. And we do the same kind of thing right over here. Last year, we baptized 52 babies. That's one a week if you do the math. We initiate them through infant baptism into the kingdom right from the beginning. And so what's happening is we're bringing you to Jesus when we do that. 
Now, we're seeing a slightly different phenomenon these days because it's not just parents bringing children to Jesus. I've noticed that oftentimes children are bringing their parents to Jesus. Now, I've seen it over and over again. They're exploring while they're in college. We're exploring, and then we get married, and we have a child. And we begin to realize that not only does that baby need Jesus, the parents need Jesus a lot more after the baby. And then the questions start. Three, four, five years old, the questions begin. I read recently, a psychologist estimated that the average child among us asks every day 125 questions. The average adult each day, six. That's dangerous. Of course, the substance of a kid's question from an adult, very different. The child usually asks things like, who made the sun? Who made the stars? Who made the moon? Where did the birds come from? Why did I need a sister? Why did grandpa have to die? And the adult usually asks questions like, where are my keys? Who stole my wallet? Who took the remote? Where's my grandson when my computer freezes? So while we're asking these functional questions as adults, you're asking the larger questions that, frankly, we've become too busy to ponder anymore. Don't ever stop asking questions because your questions will bring your parents to Jesus. I interviewed one of our confirmands. He was confirmed at the last service. He gave me permission to share this. I was interviewing him, and at the end of the interview, I usually ask like 20 questions, and then I give the interviewee a chance to ask me a question, and most of you would ask one or two questions max, but this guy came loaded for bear. He had 10 questions, and he was taking notes. What do you do during the week, he asked. What would you do if you weren't a preacher? Who do you hang out with? What do you talk about with other pastors? What's the most embarrassing moment you've had in the pulpit? <laughs> I became a little suspicious, and I said, Son, I think you've had some help on these questions. <laughs> he smiled and said, Yeah, that last one my mother told me to ask. <laughs> and I answered the question, most embarrassing moment from the pulpit. You know what I said? It's none of your business. Anyway, <laughs> anyway back to the text. People are bringing their children to Jesus, as we always would, so that he can bless them. But watch the disciples' reaction. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. To who? To the kids and their parents. One translation says the disciples rebuked them. They shooed them away. And I've always thought, why, why in the world? And then it hit me. I think they were trying to protect Jesus. They knew the demands on his schedule. They knew the stress of his calendar. They knew the burdens he was bearing. And for some reason, they didn't know Jesus as well as they should have because they thought these children were a nuisance to Jesus. They thought they were bothering Jesus. Now, in the first century culture, you got to understand children had no rights and no status whatsoever. But Jesus had no interest in status. He is no respecter of pecking order. In fact, you remember a chapter earlier from what we heard read, chapter 9, verse 33 of Mark, 
The disciples got into a little rippet, you remember? They, were, they thought they were out of ear range of Jesus, and they started fussing about which one of them was the most important to the movement. And Jesus heard it, and he said this, If any of you want to be first, you have to be willing to be last, and you must be the servant of all. And then, I love this, Jesus gave a children's lesson to the adults. He took a little child and he hugged him close and then he said, look, whoever welcomes one of these children, you're welcoming me. The man had no interest in status. He only had interest in need. So when the disciples spoke sternly to the parents, Jesus spoke sternly to the disciples. He got indignant. In fact, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to do this, but if you ever really want to upset Jesus, mistreat a child. It would be better, said Jesus, to have a millstone around your neck and thrown into the ocean than to cause one of these students to stumble. And so he said, let them come to me. And don't you ever hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom. I think it's because Jesus said that, that's why we put so much emphasis at Brentwood United Methodist Church on you, on children and youth ministry. This is why, if you do the math, 10% of the income that we receive from your generous gifts, 10% of that goes to children and youth ministry, so that in a budget of 7,700,000, and it needs to be more, goes to the ministry of our children. I've got a picture of our children's staff, our youth staff. They're marvelous people, led by Ellen Garrett in the children's wing, the youth staff led by Adam Jones. And what's interesting when you see some of these people is some of the same people in this picture who are now our leaders, they were once kids in this ministry. Adam Jones, our youth director, at the age of 15, started coming to youth ministry here for one reason, girls. (laughs) And the Lord works in mysterious ways. And God called him to youth ministry through you, through the ministry of this church. Megan Teagarden, on that other picture, one of our leaders in children's ministry, part of the staff, She was once a child in the BUMC children's ministry. Casey Orr, same, came at 14 years old and started going on youth trips, and lo and behold, God called them into ministry. And there's some of you that God will nudge into the ministry of the church, but here's the deal. You don't have to wear a stole to be in ministry. You've been baptized You've been chosen. And so whether you're a lawyer or a teacher or a ditch digger, doesn't really matter much to Jesus. What matters is that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor next to you. Jesus said something at the end of this text that I think is absolutely shocking, although we've lost the shock value in the 21st century, but I guarantee it was shocking in the first century. He said, truly, I say unto you, 
Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you'll never get into it. What's that mean? He's not romanticizing childhood. Now, he's not saying that kids are always sweet and innocent. You're not. But we learn something from you. You know what we learn from you? We learn, listen, we learn how to receive. We learn how to accept. And we learn how to trust. It's instinctive to you how to receive and trust. The grace of God is not something you can earn. You don't have enough to earn it. Never have enough good deeds to earn it, but you don't have to. It's simply something you receive, and you have an instinct for God. Paul Bloom, who is a psychologist at Yale University, writes that when children are directly asked about the origin of the earth, animals, and people, that they tend to prefer explanations that involve an intentional creator, even if the adults who raised them do not believe that. In other words, children tend to believe in God even if their parents are atheists. Psychologist John Barrett, Oxford University, says something similar. He says, even if a group of kids were put on a deserted island and raised themselves, I think they would believe in God. For it appears, he says, that we have to be educated out of the knowledge of God by secular worldviews and media in order to stop believing. And some would do that in our world, but not us. Not here, not now, not today, not ever. Last word. Sherry and I were touring in Paris a few weeks ago, speaking for educational opportunities about French Christian mystics in the early 20th century, and we saw the great Notre Dame Cathedral. Caught fire April 15th, 2019. They tell us that it'll be five years before it's restored. I think that's... Uh, I think that's an overly aggressive thing. I think it may take eight or ten. But we're standing in the shadow of this great edifice of Western civilization, and I asked our guide a question. I said, do you know what percentage of Parisians actually participate in faith community? And this is what he said. No, sir, we don't know, and we don't want to know. I said, excuse me? He said, it's a private matter, faith, and we prefer that people not express their faith publicly, that they simply keep it to themselves. Now, I have good friends there, and I recognize he was not speaking for all the French, but I was struck by his response, we don't know and we don't want to know. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about in my life the difference between what I want to know and what I need to know. We have a message that everybody needs to know. And this morning, you've responded to it, and you've gone public with your faith. I shudder to think of the things you'll see 
in your lifetime. They tell us that in your lifetime, we'll visit Mars and maybe start a hotel chain there, a community. I shudder to think about the changes you'll see, the challenges you will endure. They will be great, and the things that you learn. But I can tell you this, nothing you learn will be more important than what you already know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Students, as you walk with Jesus in your life, as you put your whole trust in his grace, you can count on God. He will lead you, he will never forsake you, and your life will be a blessing and an honor to God. And maybe, just maybe, God will use you to bring someone else to know the blessing of the embrace of Jesus. I hope that will happen. May it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.